Organizing can bring lots of benefits, but it can also bring headaches. To help navigate choppy waters, organizations, whether they be corporations, community groups, or religious gatherings, need leaders. Good leaders can be the difference between success and failure, health and sickness. But to get good leaders, we need good systems for selecting them. This is Logosish. Today on our last UM Watch episode, we reflect on jurisdictions in the United Methodist Church and the roles they play and the barriers they create in selecting the denomination's top tier of leadership. Our UM Watch series has been an exploration of how one religious institution is navigating the waters of the 21st century. What role does it have to play? What challenges does it face looking into the future? We're going to continue to reflect on topics like these in other formats in the near future. Thank you so much for listening to this series, and we'll have more of our regularly scheduled programming in the coming weeks. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. It's John. I am joined by Brian today, as well as our guest Andrew Ware. Sarah will also be joining us a little later in this episode. She's going to be jumping in kind of in the middle as a kind of surprise feature of today's episode. So you win a prize, and it's probably just our congratulations, but you'll find out when you win it if you figure out when Sarah jumps in, and it's not going to be when you think. But... We are continuing our UM Watch series today. We're talking about United Methodism and the experiences that the denomination is going through and the challenges it faces in terms of structure, in terms of ministry, in terms of grappling with various facets of the culture as a way of exploring American Christianity more broadly. So we're going to get into all of that in a minute. We're talking about jurisdictional conferences in the Methodist Church today, which in the words of Sarah, who we'll be jumping on later, she referred to as the spiciest of topics we could have chosen. But we're going to start by just checking in on everybody. Brian, how are you doing today, man? This week has been terrible, and that's all I can say about that. But I'm glad to be here. So positive news. I made it. We will make your week better. I'm looking forward to our conversation today, mostly because I love to talk about, uh, you know, oh, so fascinating uh, denominational structure issues. Yeah, we used to call you the bishop in seminary because you were the nerdiest of nerds when it came to church polity, that is, organizational stuff relating to the church. That would be because in college, I got dared to read the entire Book of Discipline from start to finish, and I actually did it. I think you said that last week, and I'm gonna repeat my reply, which is you had a very different college experience from from me. I also had a very different college experience from the other graduates at Virginia Wesleyan, now university. Um, So uh, today we have with us Andrew Ware. He is a pastor in the Virginia Annual Conference and a former delegate to Jurisdictional Conference. How are you doing, Andrew? What's up, Andrew? Doing well. Doing well, yeah. Um, Brian, I I love that you were dared to read the discipline in college uh, because I was the nerd who just read it for fun. 
Um, I'm Andrew Ware. Uh, as as uh, Brian said, I'm in the Virginia Conference. Actually, not too far away from Brian. We're, we're pretty close and serving together. Um, I've been a clergy in this conference for seven years now, um, and I actually got ordained as an elder in 2019. 2019. <laughs> How the years fly by. Um, and I was a jurisdictional conference delegate in 2012 when I was a layperson. But I also had uh, connections to the general conference when I that was when I was in seminary. And so I I also have kind of followed a lot in the polity of the church and have kind of kept up with all the goings on and how things work. Like Brian, I'm a little bit of a of a nerd in that respect, but it, it's interesting uh, to hear those things and to see how they all play out and. Sometimes it's filled with joy and sometimes it's filled with lots and lots of grief and sadness. Andrew, how'd you wind up swept up in all of this United Methodist stuff? I was born into a United Methodist church. Uh, my home church is in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, and my parents started attending church there a little bit before I was born. And my dad got stationed there in the Navy. And I just grew up in the church. I was there every Sunday was in youth group, went to a United Methodist College in Ashland, Virginia, Randolph-Macon, go to Yellow Jackets, and just, you know, grew up in the church, felt my call to ministry for the first time in high school, and then kind of lived into that call uh, by going, really by going to seminary, as, as weird as that sounds, uh, and after I graduated from college. All right, very cool. Well, that is fantastic. So let's talk a little bit then about our topic today. What is a jurisdictional conference and why should we care? Yeah, so jurisdictional conference is the, I call it the, the mid-level of the larger conference bodies in the United Methodist Church. Uh, a little bit more background on me. So I did go to the 2012 jurisdictional conference. And in that, it was a really interesting scenario. Brian, I don't know if you remember, were you at 2012 or 2011 annual conference for Virginia? I was. I was representing Virginia Wesleyan College there. So, uh, so I, I wanted to go to general conference, but I did not have the foresight to put my name in the hat before we got to the annual conference. And so I became a write-in delegate and had to learn very quickly what it meant to possibly be a delegate to general and jurisdictional and to fill in the blanks of the polity information that I didn't know. And it was really interesting because as the time went on and I was not elected to general, but then came around in the second round of voting that happens at annual conferences to jurisdictional, I began to see, OK, you know, you're not going to the conference that writes the book of discipline, but you're going to a conference that makes a lot of decisions that even more impact your annual conference. Because the big thing that you do at jurisdictional conferences is elect bishops. Uh, so your jurisdiction, especially within the well, within the United States, where we have the jurisdictional conferences, uh, each jurisdiction elects the bishops for their jurisdiction. And so here in Virginia, we elect based on the southeast jurisdiction. And so our delegates and the delegates from the rest of the jurisdiction elect delegates for uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee. I think I got all the states that are incorporated and there's just even more conferences that are in there. Uh, so you can see how, you know, this this really is the place where if you're looking for a leader to help lead your conference, this is kind of a place that you need to at least understand what's happening and, and who's coming forward as uh, nominees to the episcopacy and the way that even the votes are happening. So, Andrew, my, my next question is, what is a bishop? 
Ooh. in the UMC. Before you answer that, Andrew, let's let's recap real quick. We um, have been talking about this on each episode, so you can go back and listen to our various explanations. But the, the Methodist Church is somewhat unique in that it is divided into a series of kind of concentric circles that are ordered from top to bottom in terms of the degree to which they function. And so... There's a global conference, a general conference that sets the policy for the denomination. Then there's jurisdictional conferences that handle certain kinds of regional questions and talk about bishops. Then there's annual conferences that handle questions that come up at, effectively, most of the time, the state level, though some are smaller than the states they're in and some are combined sets of states. Uh, And then from there, it goes down to kind of the local church level. So we have these degrees of church life that range from the highly, highly contextual, very, very local out to the very, very global. And and so you're saying that the jurisdictional conference is somewhere in the middle. That's right. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it where you have, you know, your local church and your district districts in in the churches. And those are really, like you said, the very specific local places, you know, where we are here, you got your local church, and then you have your district. And those are the people who are really concerned with what's happening boots on the ground. And then I like to call them sort of the, the higher echelon, the larger gatherings, where you tend to have thousands of people gathering in these conferences, the, your annual jurisdictional in general. And I often say that jurisdictional kind of falls right in the middle there. But in a lot of ways, it kind of gets missed a lot because everybody always focuses on general conference. And I think in a lot of ways, rightfully so, with the conversations we're having, especially right now around human sexuality, especially around what our denomination is going to look like in the future. But don't often take into consideration what can happen at some of these other conference levels, like you say, where you can make contextual decisions that really help you to be able to do ministry especially, and I'll transition to Brian's question, especially when it comes to talking about bishops, because when we think about bishops or the episcopacy in the United Methodist Church, uh, these are the people's people who are leading in our annual conferences and in our global church in general. And so bishops have a lot of responsibilities uh, when they are commissioned via the jurisdictional conference, uh, which is what we uh, do to pastors who become bishops. We commission them. And They take charge of a regional area. So for Virginia, it's the Richmond Episcopal area, which covers at this current time, and we can talk about why that may change later. It covers the Virginia Annual Conference, and bishops in their local regional area are responsible for leading and helping to resource local churches through the mission of the Annual Conference, which is to to help to ensure that local churches have what they need in order to perform their various acts of ministry. And then they also have functions at a denominational level through uh, the Council of Bishops, in which they meet together and do uh, ecumenical services. Uh, They help to discern how the church will continue to move forward. And they make decisions like we've seen this last uh, week. Uh, they're, They're ones who make decisions on how we're able to gather uh, in terms of general conference and consultation with uh, uh, other denominational leaders. And so bishops, they, they have a lot of work. I'll, I'll put it that much. And they have a lot of stuff that they do. But I, I like to focus their primary aspect of really helping to 
lead annual conferences and help to resource the local churches as their pastors and lay people are trying to do ministry. And even from a local church-like perspective, the bishop is technically the person who assigns you your pastor uh, in the United Methodist Church. Uh, while there might be a, a larger cabinet or group of people who helps to make that decision, technically it comes down to the bishop approves that decision. So that's a big deal. So would a good analogy in civil society be something like the bishop is a, a governor? Though they do have decisions that they make regarding church law. So maybe a governor slash high court judge. Somewhat. The funny thing is bishops have have well so you got to be careful how you say it bishops don't really have a whole lot of power in general so they are not voting delegates at any conference they attend whether general jurisdictional or annual they're not allowed to vote and they also have to be impartial sort of impartial leaders of these conferences as well Uh, i think we've probably have experiences or have seen if you watch general conferences bishops who have maybe done a better job at that than others and and this is not a downside to any bishop um, but it, it's a lot to lead a conference but they're supposed to do it from an impartial standpoint they usually have parliamentarians and people behind them helping them they, they have authority in that they have the authority to lead and to do all these things in the conferences uh, unlike a governor who can help to bring about laws, you know, they don't have the power to say this is exactly how we do things. They do become bound by by the book of discipline. And so they become bound by general conferences. A lot of conferences look towards their bishops to enact sort of not what we would probably consider like uh, motions and resolutions that come forth from the conference. Ultimately, the bishop has the power to approve or deny any of those as long as they are not going against the discipline. Um, but we see a lot of bishops really Uh, I would say a good bishop is one who listens to their annual conference and really seeks to hear and understand what the voice of their conference is seeking for them to do within the ministry of the vast variety of local churches that can encapsulate a conference. So you're saying then that effectively this kind of impartial leadership position, that's what the jurisdiction sets. The, the, The jurisdiction is the one, the group of people who picks those people for those kind of centralized executive leadership positions. Correct. And and a little bit of the of the process behind that is so when you get to jurisdictional conference as a delegate, you come and you've been given beforehand this packet of people who have been nominated to seek episcopal election. And you can be nominated in such a variety of ways your annual conference can nominate you. Um, you can be nominated by the variety of caucuses that exist within our church. So a caucus is for, for people who may be familiar with politics is a group of people of like-minded people collecting themselves together. So one of the ones that is, is pretty present are caucuses around gender and around race. Um, the Black Methodist for Church uh, Revival is one that uh, I think people in Virginia would be familiar with as they've nominated delegates from Virginia to the Episcopacy. Uh, That's one that I can think of. I know the Commission on the Status and Role of Women has done to make sure and ensure that more women are being uh, nominated for Episcopal election. Uh, So you have these caucuses, you have conferences. You can also nominate people from the floor of the jurisdictional conference. And then you can also just, like I was elected to general conference, you can write in a person to be elected as bishop. And as long as they receive a certain amount of votes, they're considered on the ballot and able to be elected. Uh, Once you get to jurisdictional conference, 
you have that packet and you uh, spend time meeting all of the delegates. And so when I went in 2012, they sat all of Virginia delegation in the room and they pretty much just cycled each of the Episcopal delegates before us. And we had opportunities to hear their stories and to ask them questions and to gain further understanding of who they were. And then we had an opportunity as Virginia just to discuss what stood out to us. Uh, we had a little time of fellowship where we could talk to one another. Uh, and then you get down to electing them and, and election, it, it, it works out the same way that we do a lot of elections at our annual level where you have a slate of names. And if you have five bishops that you're trying to elect, you put five names onto your ballot and elect them. Each prospective bishop needs 50% of the delegation plus one. So you can understand how it might take a while to get there. Um, on any ballot, you know, they can receive any number of votes based on the delegates who are in the room. Uh, when I went in 2012, it, it took us a long time. We had to elect five delegates or five bishops. It took us a long time. We were up into the wee hours of the last night trying to finish off the voting. Uh, whereas in the Southeast jurisdiction in 2016, uh, they also had five bishops to elect and they finished in like a day. It took them like no time at all. They really did not want to be there that long. And once that process is complete, the, there's uh, a group called the Jurisdictional Committee on Episcopacy that uh, almost functions as uh, you would understand probably the bishop's cabinet. They're the ones who are responsible for appointing bishops. Uh, and then on the last day of jurisdictional conference, they announce where the bishops are going. Uh, when I went in 2012, it was announced that Virginia would receive Bishop Young Jin Cho. In 2016, we received Bishop Sharma Lewis. And so they announce where the bishops go and fulfill those appointments. And those are on a quadrennial basis. And so your bishop is elected for four years and then they'll serve those four years. And then depending on how close or far away they are from retirement, they could serve up to eight years. They actually could almost serve up to 12 in certain situations if they work out just right. So really they are elected until they're reach retirement age. So once you're elected, that's what your role is in the church. It's just you're assigned or appointed to an annual conference for four years at a given time. Correct. So if you think about pastors have uh, their membership resides within the annual conferences. So as pastors, as clergy, we are members of the annual conference. Bishops are members of the council of bishops. They're members of this large general body um, but they are appointed out of that council to go and to serve in the regional areas to which the Jurisdictional Committee on Episcopacy sends them. And the Committee on Episcopacy is made up of, of two people from each annual conference in the jurisdiction that receives insight and information from around their general conference, I mean, around their annual conference, because each annual conference has a committee that does similar work, that your SPR, local SPRC staff parish or pastor parish relations committee work will do as well. And so they're evaluating what do we need in a bishop? What are we looking for from a bishop? And when that bishop is appointed there, they're appointed there for four years. There's actually a little dynamic within the jurisdictional conference of, you know, what does it mean to appoint a bishop who can only serve four years? And so in 2012, when Bishop Cho was elected, we knew he could only serve four years because uh, there's a mandatory retirement in the Methodist Church of 72, and bishops have to retire before they're 72, uh, the quadrennia end before they're 72. So we knew Bishop Cho was only going to be there for four years. And a lot of that kind of goes into play when they're doing Episcopal elections, but also when they're doing Episcopal appointments as well. How long can this bishop serve here? Can they serve for eight, four, 
A, are we going to need to put them there for a 12th year? There are certain rules that kind of follow that sort of precedent. Uh, but a lot of those decisions are taken into effect as they appoint these bishops places. So, uh, I mean, for example, you were talking about Bishop Cho, who uh, led us here in Virginia for four years. Uh, and part of the reason why, or at least the maybe it's speculative reason, and you might be able to offer more clarification. Part of the reason why he came back to serve here after being a pastor in this conference, which was not typical, um, is because he was already aware of issues going on within our annual conference because he had served here as a district superintendent. So that that's part of that. But what are some other factors that uh, really get considered by uh, the committees on episcopacy and the uh, jurisdictional delegations? And in a lot of ways, I would encourage you to think about the ways in which you evaluate what your pastoral needs are as a church. It is uh, my experience that they do the same thing on the jurisdictional level. Uh, so your annual conference will have a committee on episcopacy and they will do all of that work of creating a conference profile uh, and really beginning to understand what are the needs of the annual of our annual conference? Where are we in terms of the ministry that we're offering in terms of the the mission that we're fulfilling, filling those needs category? And then those two leaders who, in Virginia, and I can't testify to other conferences, but it seems to be tend to be your first elected clergy person and your first elected lay person are your representatives to the jurisdictional committee on Episcopacy will take those notes. And then while the jurisdictional conference is electing bishops and in the process of electing bishops, every night after you after the jurisdictional conference dismisses, the uh, committee on Episcopacy will come in uh, and, and be meeting in the background and be deciphering all of this data because they're not just moving, like they're not just trying to figure out where to appoint those newly elected bishops, but they're trying to figure out if they need to reappoint other bishops. Uh, bishops can serve up to eight years in an annual conference. Uh, as I mentioned before, they can get special uh, permission from the Jurisdictional Committee on Episcopacy to serve 12 in certain cases, but it requires a certain vote by that committee, you know, nerd language again, which is great. Uh, but when a bishop reaches that eight year and they move, you know, the Committee on Episcopacy has to put a new bishop there just as they a, a pastor, a new pastor would come in when a pastor moves. And so they're making all of these decisions based on where the conference is at that point in time. And so it was interesting in 2012 because it took us a, between our fourth and our fifth election. I want to say we had like 15 or so ballots. And so we were doing electronic voting. So you could, we could vote pretty quickly, but there were still a lot of ballots between those two. And, and in that time, the Committee on Episcopacy was meeting over and over again, creating temporary slates for how they thought bishops could, would fall into place. Uh, and then you're right, uh, Brian, when Bishop Cho got elected, he was the last bishop elected in that conference. It, it made things interesting because Bishop Cho was one who could only serve four years. Uh, there was a dynamic that he uh, might have been a better fit for Virginia since he knew the dynamics of what was going on in Virginia. He knew what uh, Bishop Kammerer, who was our previous bishop before him, was already doing, could continue a lot of those things knowing that he was only four years in the Episcopacy and then we would be receiving another new bishop in 2016. I mean, I, I'm a little curious about having having witnessed some people like seek to be nominated. And sometimes that's a little too political for my taste because essentially it's like they're running for this. 
Is it the same way at jurisdictional conference? Yeah, it does seem to be like an intensely political process from beginning to end. And, you know, one of the things we're bringing out in this series is kind of the various kinds of ways in which we can, as, uh, you know, spiritual faith-oriented people wind up, you know, sort of recapitulating uh, some of the politics of our sort of general culture and society. Also, by the way, if you guessed that Sarah came in in the middle of Andrew's last statement, you win the prize. Surprise, it's our undying adulation for your success and wisdom and wit. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm great. Hi, sorry to interrupt. Um, sorry I had class. Andrew, I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you. <laughs> what are we talking about? Jurisdictional conferences? Yeah, and we're talking about how political they can be, Sarah. Everything in the Methodist Church is political. <laughs> yeah. What? Everything? Uh, I will say that it is very hard to enter this process and to not see and understand the politics that are happening behind it. I think, at least in the Virginia Conference, I have seen that we have uh, a, an interesting process that helps in more of the discernment aspect of the individual person who's being nominated um as i did say persons are not persons do not sell persons cannot self-nominate uh they either have to be nominated by their annual comp nominated and affirmed by their annual conference uh by some sort of caucus in the church or they have to be nominated by someone else on the floor of the jurisdictional conference but it is very hard often to leave the politics out because at the end of the day as i mentioned before they do get up and, and they talk about themselves. And it's true, they're really trying to sell you on things. When I was there in, in, in 2012, there were no yard signs. You know, uh, I, I want to say, I don't remember if there were buttons, but there could have been. It, it, it's entirely possible. Yes, it, it, it does almost seem like a political election. In my mind, I have I, I, I've wrestled with that before. And I really try and understand. And when I sat there and listened to all of the uh, potential nominees, I really tried to listen to their understanding and their story of discernment. How did they discern how they got there? And I know as a delegate who was voting on, on these people uh, and nominees that I really tried to find people who fit into that understanding of, of what does it mean to be a bishop? A lot of them say, oh, I never sought the office of the episcopacy or i never thought i would be a bishop but you know you kind of take those comments with a grain of salt when they come in but it does get hard to separate that sort of nature of it looking like a political election with the understanding that you're electing people who are going to be leading your church yeah and i mean every church is political in some way and, and life just becomes political but i think in the united methodist church in particular it's hard not to see that government analogy because our church was forming its polity at the same time that the United States was becoming a nation. So a lot of our polity reflects the polity of the United States. And remember that uh, polity means a system of governance. Right. And the root of it is is in the word politics. I've, I've taught polity a couple of times for uh, lay servant academies, and that's, that's where you start. It, it really is. And when you look at it, it's a system of governance. It is. And I think hopefully as leaders and as participators in the church, we are coming at it with the eyes of 
the discernment of God's kingdom. And I think when we enter into it, and I know that's a high-minded ideology of things, but I hope that when we look at these conferences, when we look at these leaders, that we know and hope and pray that they are being guided and led by the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure we can look at conferences where bishops are very effective, and you hear this kind of terminology and linguistics, and I'm sure you can look at annual conferences where people just don't feel like, you know, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is is working within their conference, just like we have churches that feel despaired as to either where their pastoral leadership is or just where the state of their church is, and they're hoping to find a leader to come in and to help to guide them in that process. So if, if Garrett was here today, I would have totally asked Garrett to talk about how people in Florida talk about Ken Carter being their bishop and how John and Sarah have talked about Bishop Holston and how some folks that we know in the Western jurisdiction have talked about their bishops and things like that. So it, it, you, as a pastor, like you do have the potential to have some very interesting interactions with your bishop and you get to see, and you are personally affected by what your bishop does. And when you take that into consideration, as you look at the people who are serving from your annual conference, serving as delegates to this jurisdictional conference, I mean, that's a big deal of why you want to be in contact with those delegates, be in contact with your committee on Episcopacy, because these Episcopal leaders are going to be the ones who are going to be leading your conference and are going to be impacting the way that your local churches are resourced. And so that's why I say, like, this is one of the more important things that we do as, as a denomination. I mean, it is important to have uh, a, a, an order to our understanding of how we exist and live together. I think that's very important. But we need leaders who can help to, to guide and shepherd us as we seek to become not just on the pastoral side, but also on the lay side to help to empower each and every one of us. And if we don't have a good relationship with our bishop within an annual conference, I think we can definitely see examples of conferences that have struggled because of that relationship. And I'll say that that does not necessarily make a, a bishop ineffective in their position. It may just not be a good fit. It may just like a pastor may not be a good fit. But I think that when we look at our leaders, we want our leaders to be able to lead us effectively. And so when I was in when I was at jurisdictional in 2012, that's what I looked for. I looked for clergy. I looked for uh, the clergy in this process who I'm like, OK, I could one like I asked myself, could I see them as my bishop? Could I see them as a bishop? And and really in those two questions, really beginning to unpack, does this person have what it takes to be a bishop in the United Methodist Church? And full disclosure, not everybody I voted for in 2012 was elected bishop. Well, and just to offer something else, it's not a job that I, I mean, that I think many people would be good at, nor should they like want it. Brand that's a hard job. I. <laughs> uh, well, first I got to get ordained first. Let's let's just hold off on that. Brian, I would elect you Archbishop of the United Methodist Church <laughs> if such a position existed. There is, thank the Lord, there is not. I find it interesting to have this conversation and to think about the way that the Catholic Church elects their Pope. And, and just to think of, to me, the humility that goes into that type of Episcopal position I think is something that needs to be present, right? You can sit here at, you know, 20 something, 30 something 
handful of years in ministry and say, oh, I have no aspirations to ever be bishop. And I think, and not to say that, Brian, you will ever be bishop or, or John or, or Sarah or anybody else. Brian will. <laughs> but I think that that is, that, I mean, that's humility that it doesn't lead to Episcopal, but it's, I think it is the humility that we should be looking for in our Episcopal leaders. Because when we look at our Episcopal leaders, we want leaders who will lead and who have the mindset and understand of what it takes to lead an annual conference and to lead an annual conference in the way that the conference is calling them to lead and what that looks like. Uh, no conference is the same in, in the United Methodist Church. We are, uh, John, what annual conference are you from? I apologize, I never asked. Uh, Sarah and I are from South Carolina. South Carolina, uh, Bishop Holston, love him. He's a great guy. You know, we're different from South Carolina. We're different from Florida. We're different from North, South Georgia. And that's just in our jurisdiction. I mean, we're different from other jurisdictions. And um, as we look at what it means for Virginia to be led, as y'all look at what it means for South Carolina to be led, you know, you look for people who are going to help to fulfill those things. And your annual conference is part of that conversation to help to lead that discussion. I mean, it's, it's hard to reiterate it so many times how important it is to have effective Episcopal leaders who are guiding us, I mean, and I'll say especially uh, a little selfishly as a clergy person, who are guiding the clergy uh, to make sure that they're caring for themselves and caring for their congregations. So you guys have kind of high highlighted a little bit the role and the relative experience of the people who wind up being elected bishops at the jurisdictional conference. I have to wonder, what do you guys think about the idea that maybe younger leadership is needed in positions like that? Uh, for me, I think one of our like growing challenges in the United Methodist Church is the lifetime of episcopacy. And that um, I think having younger leaders could be a beautiful thing for the life and ministry of the church uh, with people having, you know, relevant experience. But the problem is, is that that can't realistically happen because that's a lifetime of ministry. So Andrew is fully ordained and Andrew, you're, are you 32? 30, 31. Okay. So you're 31. So Andrew gets elected because he's a fully ordained person. By the way, uh, any and, fully ordained elder can be elected to the Episcopacy in the United Methodist Church. So Andrew meets every qualification that there is, technically. Um, whether or not there's adequate experience is an entirely different question. Don't start anything, Brian. Uh, I'm not. Um, but I'm. But that would be 40 years of that. That would mean yeah. that serving eight years in each annual conference, he would serve five of them. And, and I will say that those are conversations that are had at a jurisdictional conference when it comes to what it looks like to elect a bishop. There are, that I wouldn't, I would struggle with what to call them, but unwritten rules of like, okay, we try and stay away from bishops who can only serve four years. Now, again, like rules are often made to be broken and sometimes are not followed. So it's not a hard and fast thing. And a lot of times, on the other end of that, you know, I can't imagine a bishop being elected who would serve more than 24, 28 years. And you're right, Brian, with the length of episcopacy. Now, there have been some uh, uh, petitions to the general conference to set episcopal term limits. What that would look like in practice is still being debated, but that bishops would serve for eight to 12 years maximum. And then once they serve those eight to 12 years would go back into the local church. 
Uh, and I think that should we do something like that, I think you could see a lot more younger clergy. I won't say younger as in like 30s, but maybe open it up to people who are in their 40s or 50s who have, you know, 10 or 15 years of church experience and may show those spiritual gifts to be able to serve in the episcopacy. I think one of the even harder things to do is just advocating for younger clergy to be a part of the bigger process. Uh, I think the way that the process is written now, you look for bishops who are in their late 50s, in their 60s, getting close to retirement, older on. They tend to serve large churches. They tend to be district superintendents. And I think bringing younger clergy into the higher levels of conference leadership often helps. Uh, we have uh, younger clergy, hopefully, you know, look and see for younger clergy to be working in your conference offices, younger and younger clergy to be appointed to cabinet positions uh, on bishop's cabinet as district superintendents or as extended cabinet members through other uh, positions. To me, that seems like one of the better immediate ways that conferences can, can do better and to prepare these people to be able to serve in Episcopal leadership. Not that I, not that you necessarily look for bishops to like self-nominate people because the bishops are often the one who are making the decisions of these people who are being hired. But I mean, I think diversity is a big question that the United Methodist Church is needing to ask. John, your bishop, Bishop Holston, it was the first time that an African-American bishop was the first bishop elected on a jurisdictional conference ticket. Bishop Cho was the first Korean bishop in the Southeast jurisdiction. Bishop Lewis, our current bishop right now, was the first African-American woman bishop in the Southeast jurisdiction. I mean, if we think about the weight of those kinds of things that were in 2020, you know, 2016, 2012, and we're still breaking these barriers, you know, I think we got a lot of questions as a church to ask about, I mean, even starting with the nomination process of who's being nominated to so, these, to these Episcopal, not just age-wise, but gender, uh, race. Uh, we look at Bishop Oliveto and continue to look and see the way that the church uh, hopefully progresses forward and, and hopefully sexuality in the, in the future as well. And uh, just a quick, I'm bold enough to say uh, that Bishop Olivetto has proven to be one of the most effective bishops in the Western jurisdiction and is pretty much universally loved, at least by the clergy of her annual conference. But I think the wildest story I've ever heard of is actually about an Episcopal nominee from Virginia, Leotine Kelly, who then ended up serving outside of the jurisdiction. Her nomination was kind of like transferred to happen in the Western jurisdiction, even though she had never served there. So she was a pioneer in that sense. But then it took, what, 30 more years? Not 30 more years, 20 more years for that to happen here? Because uh, that happened, I think, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bishop Kelly, I mean, she, she was a member of Virginia. She actually transferred her membership out to uh, the Western jurisdiction so that because uh, and, and they called her and said, hey, you know, we think that you could be elected bishop out here. And she was the first African-American woman ever elected bishop. And her roots run deep here in Virginia. But as the church progresses forward, it needs to progress in diversity. And I think that the greatest way to progress forward in diversity is to diversify your leadership. I mean, if we look at our uh, national government right now in the United States, I mean, how many young black girls saw themselves being a vice president when, when Kamala Harris was elected and, and inaugurated uh, into office? I mean, it, there's something to be said for diverse leadership 
leads to a can lead to a diverse church. I won't be so bold to say that it will, but can lead to a diverse church. And the more that we bring those voices in and have them a part of that conversation, uh, I mean, I felt honored as a young adult to even be someone who was able to make a decision uh, to who our Episcopal leadership would be. I was 21 at the time, 22 at the time, when I went to jurisdictional conference. And to be a part of the conversations that were being had and to give props to my Virginia delegation that they listened to me that they listened to me and the other young adults in our delegation because they wanted to hear what we had to say. They wanted to hear what we wanted in a bishop. And, you know, while we weren't electing a a 50-year-old or a 40-year-old bishop, uh, we were taking that understanding of of what can a diverse conference and what can a diverse church look like and bring those diverse voices to the table so that we can begin to unpack and live into that understanding of the kingdom. And and one thing that has certainly happened in the last couple years uh, since Bishop Cho, Cho retired is that I think we're seeing something different arise because Bishop Cho is still serving at a local church like right now as uh, as a, I think he's serving a, a generally Korean church in New Jersey but it's interesting to see a bishop go back to serving a local church and I'm wondering if that could be a possibility in general in the future so we'll see how that goes. Well, it's really interesting that we've kind of highlighted a systematic bias towards older folks when it comes to this position, because, you know, I, I personally am a little skeptical of the idea that experience makes you better at things after a certain point. And it seems like, you know, one of the things that, that could benefit just about every faith-based organization is, is turnover and leadership as much as it is benefited by having experienced leaders in those positions, right? So having new ideas and and new shapes and pioneers and originators and entrepreneurs in those positions of leadership to lead can be a very powerful thing, like we've been saying in terms of thinking about diversification. And so, you know, it it really kind of makes you wonder what you might want to be looking towards for the future in terms of, you know, reshaping some of those things to reduce those biases. So John, I just heard you say Michael Beck should be Bishop. No, you should be Bishop right now, Brian <laughs> Betcher. Well, so I want to pause on that for a second. Cause I think that that highlights something again in that. I, I think this is why jurisdictional conference becomes such an important place for our denomination moving forward because jurisdictional conference is the place that we have these conversations and someone i'm not saying michael beck for bishop so michael beck if you are listening to this just don't worry but if you look at what bishop carter has done in florida to highlight some of these fresh expression kind of things within the church denomination and has lifted up leaders to help lead these initiatives I think that becomes, I mean, that becomes a big part. And I don't think you would see that. I mean, I don't know. You could have if, if Bishop Carter hadn't been uh, appointed to Florida or elected to the Episcopacy to begin with. And you hope that when you elect an old white guy, you know, we'll just name it an old white guy to a leadership position. You hope that that old white guy has the foresight to be able to bring about him and say, you know what, I'm old and I'm white. And so I need to bring people around me who are young, 
who are racially diverse, who are gender diverse, who are just diverse across the board. Uh, and then that brings in, as we begin to have these conversations about, okay, what are we doing as a jurisdictional conference and how are we empowering the annual conferences through appointing these bishops, through offering our resources around to the annual conferences, that becomes the way the jurisdictional conference becomes important. Because if they're not, a, if they're not sending bishops that are serving effectively in these annual conferences, think of how that can handcuff annual conferences in terms of doing really good ministry in their annual conference. If bishops are not listening to the annual conference in terms of what uh, the annual conference is looking to be offered, if bishops are not uh, bringing in different perspectives and ideas coming to either the cabinet table or the common table, which is their uh, sort of church council level kind of thing, then how are they helping pastors to be able to pastor? How are they helping lay people be fulfill their obligations and their covenant as church members in this 21st century where things are just vastly different? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. It's probably about time for us to wind down. And usually we wind down by talking a little bit about what's bringing us joy, what's helping us to feel fed and full and happy and at least what's, you know, getting us through the week, even if it's been a terrible, awful week. So what is bringing you guys joy right now? Um, so I started taking a continuing education sign language course, which is very exciting for me. Uh, my mother got her master's in deaf education and I grew up signing some version of ASL with my sisters and I don't have anyone to sign with. So I've kind of lost and forgotten so many signs. Um, so I'm taking a six weeks class, six, excuse me, a six week class, and I'm very excited and loving it and forcing John to learn some sign language too. I think I volunteered. Yeah, you did. You did. There's some skepticism there. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. So uh, yeah. two things, two things that are bringing me joy recently. I I love serving at the garden, and it is a absolute joy to see how they love children and like want children to be a part of their like local church experience uh that our board last week decided that uh they wanted to dedicate an entire wall in our kind of lobby area and paint it with chalkboard paint so that kids could take dust-free chalk so it doesn't get on anybody's clothes and uh then like draw on the walls at the church so I was the first person to draw on the wall today. So that was great. You know, Drew uh, wrote a welcome to the garden and drew a little symbol, our little symbol for that. So that's bringing me joy. The other joy that I have is uh, trolling John and Sarah with baby names. <laughs> Mostly John, to be honest. I don't think we've announced that on this podcast. That can be your moment of joy this week. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, my moment of joy is that I just relearned what the word mystagogical means. Oh. But I suppose our impending child in the near future also could be a source of joy. <laughs> I love the excitement around that. That is great. Sarah, run for the high hills. <laughs> His name will be Beowulf, and we shall call him Beowulf. <laughs> oh, the name discussion is going to be long. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, as someone with two kids, it is long and enduring. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that's bringing me joy this week is uh, starting to see churches begin to 
open their doors again in a lot of ways. Uh, Brian and I were reflecting on a clergy meeting we were on a little bit before this. And, you know, at the church that I serve, I'm in Suffolk, Virginia, uh, for whatever that means to anybody who's listening to this podcast. But uh, we are have opened our doors to in-person worship recently. And, and I've just been feeling and getting excited about all the things that we're going to be able to offer as like everything begins to kind of seemingly calm down with vaccinations and and numbers going down and everything like that. And so uh, my joy is just Easter is around the corner and I cannot wait to have an in-person Easter service. Cause I think a lot of us uh, in our churches missed out on that last year. And I am just excited for that to happen. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Andrew. Where can people find you if they want to look you up? They can find me everywhere. No, um, I am uh, I am on Instagram uh, and Twitter, both of them, uh, at Runnin, without a G, no G, R-U-N-N-I-N, Rev, R-E-V, 89. Runnin Rev 89. Uh, so I am a, a runner and I love to run. Uh, they can find me that way, but it's just a bunch of running content. I promise it's not as exciting as it seems but they can start a conversation through both of those mediums. Awesome. Very cool. Well, if you guys would like to help out the podcast, you can like, you can subscribe, you can rate. We really don't care what you write in the rating as long as it's five stars. You can write whatever you want. You could say this is the worst podcast ever as long as that star rating is at least five. If you want to help support the podcast, you can also check out our bookshop. We are an affiliate with bookshop.org. And so purchases from that, which you can link to through our website, will assist both local bookstores and this wonderful podcast as we seek to pay our bills and perhaps keep the lights on and keep doing this for at least another few weeks. Just kidding. We're having a lot of fun and planning on continuing to do this for a while. So thank you so much for listening. You had something to say, Brian. I was going to say we're starting scheduling for the fall. Yeah. So if you want to be a guest on the show and have something somewhat relevant to say, hit us up. We have an email on the website too. Logosish.com. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. Have a great week.